and welcome to The Art of Work, a podcast about how we find fulfilment as we pay the bills. Today, I'm delighted to welcome dance consultant Teresa Beattie. Teresa started her career at Sadler's Wells and has worked as a curator at Southbank Centre, Dance Umbrella and the Royal Opera House. She was Director of Artist Development at The Place for a decade and has done several stints at Arts Council England, including one as Director of Dance London. In 2006, she set up a consultancy providing organisational development and recruitment services. Clients have included One Dance UK, Dance City, Dance East and Svin Malta National Dance Company. She mentors artistic directors, CEOs and executive directors, is a trustee of Hofesh Schechter Company and a governor of Northern School of Contemporary Dance and last year was awarded an OBE for services to dance. In this podcast, she talks about the importance of curiosity, mastery and cheek. Well, hello, Teresa, and welcome to The Art of Work. I'm absolutely delighted to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Christina. It's lovely to be here and thank you for asking me. Not at all. So we worked together at the South Bank Centre early 90s. And my chief memory of that time is probably a kind of sense of a very buzzy, vibrant art scene, multidisciplinary, which felt very exciting. And looking back, feels even more exciting because I realised how rare that was. What is your key memory or impression of that time? I I think my main memory, Christina, is of um, that coming together, that sort of colliding of different art forms. I felt that uh, we were there at a time when the it had been a music centre. It was primarily a place for classical music and it did that superbly. But there was a sense of welcome for many other art forms. I mean, my, my job was special projects officer, which was a brilliant role because I was brought in to work on anything that wasn't a straightforward concert that was staged. So I did all, you know, did all manner of things, a lot of um, international festivals as well. And when I look back now at the resources that we had, mm absolutely extraordinary you know I think we brought almost 100 artists from Indonesia for one of the festivals it's just amazing to even even think about that now and I was very fortunate because there was an openness to um, evolving there was a very nascent dance program when I arrived and there was a real openness to evolving that um, and to working with live music Mm. which gave us um gave us a bit of a USP for the dance programme. And really, one of the challenges was working with the spaces that we had, um, which were were for music. This is prior to the the developments that have happened since, capital developments. Um, And making those work for dance was was, was a fascinating project in itself and brilliant learning for me. I feel I was there at a very... I was privileged to be there at a very particular time. Yeah, I, I feel that as well. And in fact... Looking back, I think the fees we paid writers on the literature programme then are were higher than the fees I get paid now as a writer to take part in festivals. And that's 30 years ago. It's kind of shocking, really. Um, but I would like to go back to the beginning and not the womb, but um, where where the dance bug started for you. I, I've, I've heard you talk about, you know, being in the assembly hall at school and being a tree and being a mushroom, was that it? <laughs> or tell me more. Um, I, I think it really um, started for me when I went to my first ballet lessons. I was a little bit, a um, uh, little bit older in dance. Many dancers start when they're three. Um, I think I was probably about nine, and the reason I went was because I had a lot of respiratory problems, infections, and things, and it was a way to get me get me moving. And I really, I think as a slightly introverted child, I really liked the sense that you could put the whole of yourself into dance, into ballet. And, and it was, a, it, and I liked the discipline of it as well. And I loved the music. So there were lots of things to really enjoy. Um, the place where I did it was I have an abiding memory of the smell of beer and cigarettes because it was a social club. 
and we held onto the back of the chairs. You know, there wasn't a ballet bar or mirrors or anything like that, and the floor was slightly sticky. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, that that was where it all started. And when did ballet turn into contemporary dance? Well, I discovered the place, which is the I suppose the, the cradle of contemporary dance in the in England, in that it was you know one of the first. Now it's proliferated um I discovered that of course there wasn't the internet when I was a teenager discovered it from a magazine and I went on a Easter course I took myself off and as well as being introduced to Graham technique so Martha Graham's technique um we watched lots and lots of films of her company at lunchtime and I remember it just opened my eyes to a really different very rigorous way of moving but where the impetus came from the center of the body and there was something about that I just found incredibly exciting and also we the accompaniment was often drums or piano or a piano that had the back taken off so you could play the strings and this was all completely unfamiliar um, territory um, for me but you know, again, I was very, very fortunate in that you know I found the place. So I, I sort of found the mothership. <laughs> yes, yeah. I don't think I'd seen any contemporary dance until I worked at the South Bank, <clears throat> um, mm. and I think probably many people may still not be entirely clear what it is. Can you can you kind of explain to a complete novice what it is and why? What it is about it that, when it's good, is so wonderful. I think um, it, it does defy categorization, and you know the word contemporary is, I think, is quite is quite unhelpful in many ways. I would say it's dance that is of now, that is relevant. It's the kind of dance where if you stand at the back of the theatre, you can watch the audience lean forward because they want to be closer to it or in it, um, and it's very visceral. It, it 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 touches you. It's a very emotional, feeling based um, response, and that's doesn't mean it doesn't have an intellectual clout because I think it, I think it um, can have that as well. It's a very very broad church, and um, so I try not to use the contemporary word, but instead to identify the. Well, to work with artists to work out how they would describe their work mm. and then how we would convey that to an audience. And we have a big advantage in dancing that we have fantastic visuals. Mm. So often it is the visual that carries the message, actually, and words can really get in the way um, in, in terms of uh, either trying to paint a picture of what something is or what it isn't of the artist's intention. So I, I think um, I think using powerful imagery is a really important way of, of, of conveying some of the excitement of it. And of course, it's brilliant for social media as well. And when did you, when did you think this is kind of what I want to do with my life work-wise? Quite, quite early. Um, I used to, had various Saturday jobs and things like that from when I was 15. And I used to come up to London and just sit in Trafalgar Square by the fountains just to be there because I wanted to be in London. I mean, I knew I grew up in a small village in Hertfordshire. I knew I just wanted to be in London. Um, So that sense of wanting to be in the heart of things was always very, um, was always very strong for me. Um, And I realized, I recognized pretty I recognised pretty early on that I wasn't going to be a dancer. And I think I was fortunate in that because it's so incredibly competitive, particularly for women, because there's many, many, many more women than there are men. And that imbalance, even though it has improved a bit, still, still exists. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do in the art form. I just knew I wanted to be in it. I suppose from about the age of 15. And you, you did a, a degree in performing arts at Middlesex, 
which clearly wasn't wasn't just dance. What did the other? What did you gain from your study of other arts? That's a really really interesting question. Um, I think Middlesex at that time um, was quite a remarkable place. I was in, I think, the third the third year the degree had run. So there was a lot of excitement um, amongst the people teaching it and leading it about what it was and what it could be. Um, it was very multifaceted. So we had compulsory juggling, for example. Nightmare. Uh, <laughs> yep, which was a bit of a nightmare. I never quite grasped that. Um, I did a module which was called Making Three-Dimensional Objects Larger Than Yourself, which yep. we did every Wednesday afternoon for a semester. Um, there were dance classes, and there were quite a lot of them, but not not the number that you would get at a conservatoire. I learned piano, I learned drumming, neither neither to any fantastic level, but I got a sense of them. I learned my way around a lighting board. Um, how to stage manage, um, and did a lot of projects which were about collaboration. And the, the degree at that time, Middlesex's sort of specialism, if you like, was mature students. That was their, and they had a thing called a Diploma of Higher Education where you could combine lots of different courses. Um, and it meant that the degree I was doing had a lot of mature students on it. And there were a few of us who were 18, but it completely got me over any kind of a thing about working with people who were from a different generation to myself, which I've always been very grateful for. Um, and there were people there with a lot of experience of life, um, which was very, very different from being in a dance conservatoire, which has other massive benefits. However, usually everyone is around the same age. Mm. So I think that was very helpful. And just being in this mixed ecology of uh, people who had different interests, I think, was 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 very, very formative for me and filled me with confidence, not in any one thing, but about being able to learn or pick up different things and a sense of how many options there were in the arts, Mm. because I I had all these different experiences by the time I graduated. And what do you think it did? I mean, everybody nowadays, businesses talk about creativity and the importance of it. It's much easier to use the word than to kind of demonstrate what it means. And actually, arts admin is not automatically creative. A lot of it is extremely uncreative. Uh, you know, lots of you know, the clue is in the word admin. <laughs> There's a lot of admin, <laughs> and um, uh, it can be creative, but it depends how you do it. How would you say this might be a difficult question to answer? But how would you say it has affected your ability to think and work creatively? I, th- I think it has. Um... I think the main way in which it has helped, actually, is that I do have a sense of the the wholeness of working on, let's say, an artistic project, that um, everybody's role has creativity um, within it. As you say, I mean, there are very, very boring parts of arts, arts management or arts administration. I think it's about everybody having some kind of buy-in to the artistic vision. And, and having a sense of how they're contributing, and that's about the, the leadership, if you like, and how, how a project is um, constructed and put together. And I think it's about taking special care of the people whose roles are furthest from the art. Mm, and yeah. very often, those are the people on the front line. I remember actually when I started at the, at the South Bank, one of the things I had to do, I don't know if you did it, Christina, but it was to spend a day in the box office. I never did do that, actually. Yeah, no. I had to spend a day in the box office when Nutcracker had just gone on sale. And, um, you know, it's it's a real eye-opener. If your box office, if your front of, front of house and box office people aren't briefed on what it is, it doesn't matter how much work has gone on behind the scenes. It's like concentric circles. You've got to make sure the messaging, I think, really, really goes, goes outwards. Um, and creativity is something I have to remind... I have to remind myself about 
in my current role as a consultant quite a lot because often I'm called in when there's a problem of some sort Mm. and I'm generalizing dreadfully here but when there's a problem very often we look at might be looking at finances or we might be looking at human resources or you know whatever the issue is if we look at that and we unyoke it from the artistic vision and mission of the company I think we're in dangerous waters. Mm. I, I really want to talk more about your consultancy later but one thing I I would like to ask is I know you work I think pretty much exclusively with dance companies do you think that the skills you've developed in your consultancy could work in any company? Uh, you ask you ask such good questions and I was listening to um um one of your um other podcasts one with Gillian Tett oh yeah when she was talking about goldfish bowl fish bowls and swimming in swimming in different fish bowls in in different worlds because it's a question I quite often um ask myself I think the skills are I think my skills are transferable and you only have to look at the success of many many dance artists who go into other areas just to see that the skills are transferable. I think the key thing is whether the person concerned wants to transfer them. Yes. Because yes. people tend, people do fall in love with the art form. And um, it is quite small. And I always feel aware that that's quite dangerous. You know, you can, you can really get, you can really get siloed. So I do try and consciously kind of get out of it and do other things or experience, experience other things. But there's something about the um, the combination of the the kind of the physical embodied knowledge that dance artists, dancers, choreographers, the people who make who make the work, the way that they collaborate is a very social art form. There's something about that that I find very very compelling, mm. um, and. I see part of my role as helping organisations, if you like, to make everybody who's involved in an organisation feel part of the tribe. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm, I count myself as very fortunate to be on the board of Hoffesh Schechter Company, a company I've worked with for many, many years. And um, Hoffesh talks about the tribe. And I really like that, that, that philosophy of everybody feeling part of something and extending that to your participants and also to your, you know, to your audiences, to your agents. I mean, it sounds rather, it sounds quite utopian, but it, it really is about, um, it, it's about people feeling something over and above the necessary, you know, financial and other kinds of transactions that, of course, have to go on for um, a company to work and to be, to be successful. That's really interesting because very often how the word tribe is used is, to suggest homogeneity yes. and that and distrust of the non-tribe and of course we've seen mm. that in our politics rather than yes. in recent years so it's interesting that it's about um, what you've said mm. using okay. as something you know that could also encompass diversity in all its forms absolutely and I think you make a very good point that there you know one has to be very wary that it can be exclusive <laughs> it can be perceived as exclusive you know you're you're um in the tribe or you're or you're not in the tribe and I think that's about how you I think that's about the welcome that you give when people have made a decision to come over the threshold but more importantly than that it's all of the steps before that about how you convey welcome yeah you see it's interesting I I haven't done much to do with the visual arts for some years now but one of the things that I always felt was an enormous barrier was the jargon-ridden nonsense that was written about the visual arts, even on the labels next to the paintings and in the catalogue, which art, arts, art curators seemed to be completely unaware of. It was like, you know, let's make this as inaccessible and incomprehensible sounding as possible. And dances can be can be guilty of that, I think. Um, and there's a you know one of the one of the things that has grown within my lifetime, which I welcome hugely, is the 
the academic study of dance. You know, the UK has many, many, many people doing PhDs, for example, has some thrive, you know, thriving research, which just wasn't there when I was growing up. And that is an incredible advance. And there are artists who work in that area. They also present their work in theatres. They, you know, the polymaths, they move across and in between and find all the little cracks and everything. Um, I think, though, it can, it can give rise to, you know, things can get lost in translation. And it's about the, how the languaging is used about a piece of work or about an idea or the concepts behind a piece of work, how that is expressed for, for different audiences. And um, I think that's where the, the skills of the skills of marketing communications people are absolutely critical yeah. because it has, to, it has to hold the integrity of what the artist's intention at the same time, you still want people to come see it. So you did your performing arts degree and then your first job was at Sadler's Wells, which um, one of the, one of the key dance theatres in the world, probably. Is it? I mean, certainly in this country. Is it in the world, would you say? It is in the world now. Mm. Yeah. When, when I went there, it was it was very significant. Um, um, you know, it was it was. Um, one of the very, very key places where ballet started in this country. One cannot underestimate the significance of Sadler's Wells. It was in the old building, which is very different to the, the um, well, quite old, but still very shiny one that we have, um, that we have now. And um, I, I was taken on to start their education and community programme. So I had a blank slate, which was a, an extraordinary um extraordinary experience you were what so very early 20s yes yeah I, I I got the job on a short-term basis because I the person who had got it unfortunately wasn't very well and so I pitched to do it for a few weeks and then she didn't come back and then I got it so I was there was definitely some some luck there I was very fortunate it was a fantastic time and we had Twyla Tharp we had Bill T. Jones and Arnie Zane we had Miss Cunningham um, it was when the American dance was... Um, but I remember some huge. of those, yeah. Yeah, and then we had London Contemporary Dance Theatre for two long seasons a year. So um, I, you know, I had such riches to work with. I was very, was very, very lucky. And also um, supported by the GLC and by Islington Council. And so I had a lot of support to do work locally, um, there's one project that I particularly loved, which was bringing together primary school children and elders. Mm. Um, and that was a, a project which was about, about um, memories. And then we started, started in a very small way, the work with older dancers, which has subsequently been hugely evolved by um, other people. I can't take the credit for that. And there's now a festival called Elixir which is all about performance work by mature dancers from all over the Why country. Why can't you take the credit for that, Teresa, if you started it? Well, I think I planted the acorn, but I, a, lot, a lot of people nourished, a lot of people yeah, nourished the oak tree. <laughs> Come on, yeah. that's too female to say you can't is take it? Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, no point taken. <laughs> and, then, Sorry, yeah, and then we built the Lillian Bayliss Theatre, which... It was very much the way it is now. When they redeveloped the building as it is, as it currently is, they sort of, you know, wrapped it up and then and then reopened it, made a few changes to it to improve it. But yeah, I also had the good fortune to be able to open a smaller theatre there. Amazing. Yeah, all mm. all in your twenties, and then you went yeah. to the South Bank. Why did you go to the South Bank? I went. Um, I got. I had become interested in music. That was one reason. Um, the South Bank had, as you know as well as I do, a brilliant education program, mm. which Sue Robertson was leading. And um, I got very interested in education, and I really liked the idea of being in a building that had that that kind of engine um, there. Um, I've always loved the South Bank as a building. And I think I had the benefit of being quite young and quite fearless. And I, I liked the idea of a job that, that um, while it was clear what the job was uh, as a job, 
what I would be working with wasn't clear. That was yet to be discovered. And um, that that really excited me. You, so you did that special sort of um, mysteriously named special projects job. Yes. <laughs> and then yeah. you became a dance producer. Um, what did that actually involve and uh, how did it, I mean, did you like it more than what you were doing before? Um, it evolved quite organically. Um, the festivals that I was working on, which were cross art form festivals, but always with, with music at their heart. Um, I think there was a little bit less money. And so those were, were contracted, um, contracted a bit. Um, and we'd done a few kind of pilot dance projects. And we'd also discovered that they sold very well. And of course, at the South Bank, we, um, for anybody who doesn't know the South Bank building, we had an open space, a ballroom space where people could sit around drinking their tea and coffee or whatever, and whatever went on, watch completely free, come and go as you liked. We had a little space called the Purcell Room, a 900 seat called QEH, and then we had the Festival Hall. So you potentially had a progression route and you had all of the areas outside the building where you could do things. So there were quite a lot of opportunities to develop different sorts of audiences and to try to progress them. I was incredibly lucky that I worked in partnership with the place, with uh, one of my mentors, um, who's a great friend now and who I still work with, John Ashford. And we um, co-commissioned and presented work together at the South Bank, as well as me selecting work and, and commissioning. I learned a huge amount from him. And I think he um, certainly um, opened my eyes to the possibilities of internationally work coming from Europe. Um, and um, at that time, there was a lot of exciting developments in England as well. We had artists like Rosemary Lee, um, who made a beautiful work for the ballroom. Um, we were also, I think, in a, in a privileged position because we could do laboratories where we brought artists together. And you may remember these. So we brought together poets and choreographers, writers and choreographers, working with a consultant called um, Dick Matchett. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, we brought together jewellers and choreographers, so jewellers who made life-size jewellery and, of course, composers and choreographers. And those are two types of artists whose paths don't cross nearly as much as you might think they do. You really have to choreograph it. And they were about people meeting each other, experiencing each other's work and then deciding whether they might work together. And I really enjoyed that artist development aspect of it that you know where you're you're basically growing relationships which might over time benefit your own program because you could grow things further and put them on but they're actually about benefiting a much wider ecology it feels to me anyway such a luxury now looking back at all those kind yeah. of creative experiments and giving people complete freedom to fail if they yeah know, if they wanted to or needed to or if it happened yeah it's quite hard to imagine well, for me anyway, environments quite like that now. Now, yeah. what, I do, what I do remember rather hazily is um, a man with uh, a misleadingly kind face was brought in as a hatchet man to um, shake things up, make cuts, do redundancies. I recollect that I may have got this wrong, that you left at around that time. Is that right? Yeah, I did leave around that time. It was about, I'd been there about five years. And you um, went freelance? I went freelance. I actually had burnt myself out. Mm. Um, it had been doing those two jobs in a row and my boundaries were pretty poor. Uh, I think when you're very interested in what you do and you're very curious and you're in a place like the South Bank where, you know, I could go to a brilliant poetry reading, I could go to a music, you really want to do as much as you can and you're in your 20s. And so I succeeded in in wearing myself out by um, by doing that. Yeah, so I went freelance for a fairly short time and it wasn't it wasn't for me at that moment, I don't think. And then I went to the place. Mm. Yeah. You were the artistic director. 
No, I went as director of artist development. Ah, so right. what what I was able to do at the at the place was to bring together two things that were already happening there. One was the video place, which was about recording dance performances. Um, and the other one was what was called the data place. And that was about um, informing artists about what they needed to know about, and particularly about what was happening in Europe. Um, and and also the also the UK and so I was, I was brought in to bring those two together, um, and the rather I mean I don't really like the phrase artist development because it's, it sounds and I have been guilty of this it sounds like doing things to people rather than with people, and listening to them about what they what they need but that's what the um, that was what the job was called, and we did what it says on the tin we um, we worked with many, many hundreds of artists over the decade that I was there and built up all sorts of support systems. I found it really fascinating and really insightful and it really taught me just how difficult it is to make excellent dance. And I never lose my respect for the people that do it. It's a very, very hard endeavour. Obviously, not everything that people produce is good, and obviously, no. not every artist you developed would have produced good work. Did you ever get jaded by the less good stuff? Yeah, I think that's why I left in the end. Um, because, and I, I think it's necessary. Um, it's a bit like a garden. You know, a few things will grow through strongly, but you have to sow a lot of things to to start with. Um, so, and and the, the place at that time was a venue that was presenting, not exclusively by any means, but a lot of work that was at, by artists who were at the earlier stages of their career. So you're going to, you know, your success rate is going to be, success rate in maybe in my terms, which might be different to their terms, is going to be, is going to be a bit limited. Um and it, it does, it, it does, yeah, it does get, you do get jaded after a bit. I don't think it's the kind of job that you can do for that long. And I think I possibly did it for a little bit too long, if I'm completely, if I'm completely honest. I mean, the other thing that I remember feeling, and I, was, I wasn't doing that, but obviously I, after Southbank Centre, I worked at the Poetry Society, a job I really loved in so many ways. But um, facilitating being, in a sense, to put it very uh, sort of, starkly the handmaiden to other people's artist, mm -hmm. artistic work particularly when the work isn't very good it can take its toll mm -hmm. and um I wondered how you how you kind of kept kept your own sort of energy zest freshness through that I've had remarkable colleagues um one of the things about John who I mentioned earlier is his and he still has it now, this absolute faith and commitment that if you keep on looking, you will find excellent work. And that artists have to make not very good work on the way to making yes. work that fulfills their own objectives. And it's about recognising that. And one of the things that being at the place for that decade allowed me to do was to go on a journey with people. And that is one of the things I really, um, I really enjoy is it, it, it you know you might have a work that's on the way to the next work and I, I think it is about I think it is about recognizing that but I yeah I when I left the place I I did the classic thing I went to India for a couple of months and did yoga and I've just need, I needed to completely clear my mm. completely clear my head um I just didn't feel I could advise anybody else anymore. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was kind of, clean, you know, cleaned out, <laughs> if you like. And then you set up as a dance consultant, but you do so many different things. Did you have a clear vision when you started of what you wanted your work to look like? What, what, what was the kind of key driver? I didn't. Um, as, when I came back from, back from India, I, I did two stints for the Arts Council. Um, and I, whenever people ask me about working with the Arts Council, I always say I think, I, I think it's a great thing to do. It gives you a unique perspective. Um, and I was fortunate. I did two maternity covers for the Director of Dance for London for a woman called Anu Giri. 
and then I worked in strategy, which doesn't, I, which is from the national office. The structure is different now, and I worked in the southeast. Mm. So I got very different flavors of um, of working for the Arts Council, and that that gave me a lot of pause for thought. It's sort of like it, it was like if you imagine my career as a kind of apple, there was a big bite out of it, which was understanding what it's like on the other side of the desk at the Arts Council, and that that filled that filled that in um and when I left there of, of course um people wanted to work with me because um because I'd worked at the Arts Council the reality of course is that things change very quickly and actually your knowledge is you know any additional knowledge that you have that's useful only lasts for about six or nine months <laughs> um so people yeah people wanted to work with me and then and and then but after that I also got a number of interim roles where I would go into an organisation and um, work as a CEO or an ED for for a while, while they were, you know, looking for somebody else or deciding what the job was, and that's how I um, worked at the Opera House for on and off for for a number of um, a number of years, which I, I really really enjoyed. And all the while, I was my consultancy was kind of settling into um, at that time four areas, now three, and. So one of those is about business planning, very much working from the art end of things and um, looking at the kind of balance that you need to have to have an organisation. And I'm going to use words that are very kind of dance oriented because I think in this current environment, it's quite choreographic. Um, one of the things you said in an interview was that the, the, the sort of power of being a sounding board, and yeah, uh, I think sometimes even even if one were just to sit there and nod, <laughs> that might yeah. be quite helpful. Though one hopes one does more than that, but there is something about articulating in the process of articulating the challenges you're facing. Yeah, you can kind of start untangling for yourself in some way, can't you? Yes, yes, and. Also, I find when I'm when I'm mentoring, um, it's also mentored in, individual artists. Very often, what they want to talk, it's navigation. Mm. It's, it's how you navigate talking to um, talking to promoters. How you navigate finding the opportunities that you that you want. Um, it's about what's a realistic expectation. Um, and it's about chiseling your vision so that you're, you're as clear as you can be about what an artist is as clear as they can be about what it is they want to do. I mean, in the visual arts, all artists have artist statements. And that's not something we some artists do in dance, but many don't. And I, there's often a piece of work which is about what's your, you know, what's your position? What are your beliefs? And most of the artists I work with have are passionately committed to social justice as part of what they do and the health and well-being um, benefits that come with dance. But I believe you can only deliver those benefits with art if the art is excellent. Yes, exactly. Otherwise, it's propaganda, isn't it? And also, yeah. also Teresa, if we're talking diversity, how many of them are right-wing Brexiters? Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying. Because generally speaking, people in the arts are on the left. Gen people yeah, in people in yes. literature are on the left. So there is an enormous, and in comedy, it's a kind of standing joke that you, you only yeah. have to kind of slag off the government to get a laugh in a way. I mean, yes. you know, I would be on their side, but it's not diversity, is it? No, 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 no. It's not diversity in, 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 that, in that sense. Um, I, would, I would say for me, one of the one of the benefits I've had throughout throughout my career really particularly well, since the place in particular has though been working with artists who have a diversity of cultural backgrounds and interests and how they bring that to their work so an artist called Akasha Dedra who actually had the London premiere of his work Samsara at Sadler's Wells earlier this week um I've worked with him for for a long time a long time now and We've been on a, a very long journey of evolving his company and the structure that he needs as an artist to be able to um, realise his vision fully at the scale that he wants to. 
so the piece that was on at Sadler's Wells this week, you know, it's like an iceberg. The show that we saw was this tiny little triangle above the water, and then there's this, well, it's this case with many pieces, there's this huge endeavour, um, uh, you know, un- underneath it. And also work with Joseph Tunga, who's um, in an advisory capacity, and he's about to make his first main stage piece for the Royal Ballet. And it's very... There is a hot, there's a new generation coming through, and one cannot underestimate how important Sadler's Wells has been to that. Um, hearing you speak, it's kind of evident what fires you in your work and what you love about it. Which bits of it don't you like? Um, I, I don't. Um, well, I, I, I don't enjoy going going to work that um, any. I think my capacity for being patient about work that is not fully realized is is diminishing. Let's put it let's put it put it that way. I, I had enough poetry readings to last me forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think I'm being, I'm being a bit, bit more discerning about what I what I go to, but I hope I'm still curious. I think that's the so I'm trying to broaden what I go to see because dance butts up against. I mean there's lots of work. Um I, I'm not keen on writing applications. I quite like editing them, but I'm not keen on writing them from scratch. Um, there are parts of recruitment that are very interesting. There are other parts that are really, the research is, it, it's time consuming and it's long. And, you know, sometimes absolutely fairly, you, you have a day when you're ringing people up all day and they're saying really understandable things like you know if I wanted to do voluntary work I do it for my local food bank because mm. I think that's more important mm. or I just haven't got time mm. to do that anymore or sometimes you know, you're the third person to ring me this month can you please not call me anymore awful and then you must feel like you're selling advertising space yeah so I think think that's I think that's quite tough um I don't really do evaluation work anymore because I just got um I got a bit uh I got a bit jaded by it. I mean, not all evaluation is like this, but sometimes evaluators are brought in simply because an evaluation needs to be done and nothing is actually done with it. You know, you present your findings and nothing really changes and you make your recommendations and that's, I think, life who, is who, too... Who would commission you to do that? Um, it's, it's, it'll often be an organisation that has a grant that requires an evaluation. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, other people are, you know, they apply the recommendations and it's really gratifying. Don't get, you know, don't get me wrong, but evaluation is, is there's a very tedious part of it. I quite enjoy pitching for work, particularly with other people. Yeah, I like working with a with um, another consultant on something where we have complementary skills. I, I enjoy, yeah, I, I quite enjoy doing that. Um, would that I, be entirely, is that it's speculative or is it? Yeah, based, yeah. Well, sometimes speculative, sometimes um, I might get approached and then I would work up the idea and think, well, actually, I need somebody who can do X and invite somebody to come in with me. And I, it's very nice when people do that to me as well and invite me to do something, um, to do something with them. And then there's the whole I've I've learned recently this is called composting. I'd never heard of this before. It sounds, but it's it's where you're having lots of speculative conversations with people, and sort of laying the ground and saying that you have availability, which I I, I you know I do at the moment because we're all waiting for the outcome of the Arts Council funding next week, which will dictate what work there is some of the work that is available um but yeah having those kind of speculative conversations while it's very interesting in and of itself I think it can be a bit anxiety provoking because it's so uncertain Mm. it it, you're kind of you know to use another horticultural analogy you're kind of throwing seeds out and hoping some of them land Mm. and uh, generally some of them do um but it's yeah I think that that can be a bit that can be a bit a bit hard I'm, I was amazed to see uh, when I was researching this interview that you have a, a minimal digital footprint. Uh, you don't have a website. Um, I, wh- why? Well, clearly you don't need any of those things. But was that an active decision, or have you just thought, yeah, why? Why don't you have a website? Why don't you? Do, because nowadays we're all told we need this, we need that. 
Mm. You don't think have any of them. It's a good. It's a really good question. In fact, I've just recently completed a social media course because um, my clients need to have digital plans, and I thought I need to learn about this. And uh, I have to say, it really reinforced um, some of my some things that I'm less enthusiastic about to do with social media but I do Tell feel I'm, <laughs> but I do feel I'm now more equipped yes. <laughs> to be able to do it and to make my own choices about where I will have a footprint so watch this space um, I also have a web um have I'm talking to somebody about having a website <laughs> quite a quite a straight quite a straightforward one and um I think that's because uh, the market my market the consultants market is getting more and more busy Mm. there's some great people coming into the market and one of the things I love doing is working part of my mentoring is working with people who are new to freelancing and helping them um helping them set themselves up at the same time I'm aware that you know there's only so much work out there so um that is an area that I'm going to do something about and it is long it is long overdue and the, the the course that I did, they talk about you taking your invisibility cloak off, <laughs> and I really like this because I think there is there is there is something um, there is something about that, and one has to have visibility. And if you don't stamp how you want to be visible, people will make their decisions mm. anyway about about who about who you are. So yeah, so watch this watch this space really, but I think it's going to be quite a slow burn. Um, it's not it's not my favorite thing to do very necessary I completely sympathize somebody on this podcast I think Harriet Minter said something along the lines of you have a brand you may not know it and you may not know what it is but you do have a brand so you might as well try to to kind of find it or something like that yeah yeah I I think that's I think that's a fair point and um, if you don't tell people they don't know yeah and part of your brand is Teresa Beatty OBE, having been awarded an OBE last year and having gone to Windsor yesterday to pick it up. What was it like? What, how did you react when you got the news and what effect has it had on your career? Well, um, because I uh, I got it quite a while back for various reasons and we, we did it yesterday. Um, I actually I got it by email and I thought it was a scam. <laughs> um and then I uh, eventually I realized that um, that it wasn't. And part of the reason for me thinking that is that it's relatively unusual for somebody who is a freelancer. Mm, very. Because, yeah. because often honors are very much about people who've given long, you know, not necessarily long, but service in an organizational context. Mm. And um I I felt that it said something which was about far more than me about the importance of freelancers um, in dance. I mean, dance is completely different, driven by freelancers. Mm-hmm. The great majority of artists are freelancers. Um, the number of, of dancers who are employed year-round is very, very small compared to the number of freelancers. Almost everybody who works in the industry. So we have this huge dependency. So it felt good that that, that was that was being, um, being recognised. And, um, yeah, so I hope to use it. I plan to use it, um, use it for good. And yesterday was really, it was really extraordinary. I mean, it was the most beautiful autumn day. And Windsor is very imposing. I had a fascinating time talking to um, lots of military people who had got, you know, had got awards had a glimpse of Daniel Craig, which was very exciting as he was whisked by, (laughs) by security. And for youngsters who are starting out now in any field, actually, not necessarily dance, what would what advice would you give about how to how to find out what it is that you can do work wise that will be reasonably satisfying? Uh, I think I, I would say always be curious. Um, and when you're young let your curiosity have no bounds if you're interested in movement it is a very wide field um if you're interested in street dance there's so many forms within it there's breaking there's crumping there's hip-hop you know you might be interested in graffiti as well there's so much to explore south asian forms 
the um, the many many contemporary dance forms, you know, ballet, the, the different styles within it, and of course your own, you know, discovering your own embodied movement. Who are you as a mover? You know, be a magpie, draw from mm. many many sources, um, and alongside that, I would say find one technique, style, whatever you choose to call it, and really commit to gaining some mastery of that because there are so many choices and everything's available on YouTube. People come to audition now and they've learned, you know, they know it. And that is great, but you can end up having a superficial knowledge of many things. And I think you need to have a deeper knowledge of one and then you can incrementally um, build build upon that so that's the that's the the physical side I think you've really got to look after your mental health and that's about um, you know resilience because there will be there will be knockbacks and thinking about how you can deal with that what what support mechanisms might you be able to you know put in place it's about your you know if you're younger it's about your friendship groups as well your peer groups as well as um, adults who may be able to provide you with that support see as much as you can see stuff live if you can that might not be possible but you know do do your research you do need to be a researcher and and you know find a way of capturing or noting or however you like to do it what interests you and and think about why so it's like you're building your palette or your mood board of things that um things that interest you and you know, if you can find a way, it might be an apprenticeship, it might be a placement, it might be an internship, to spend a little bit of time in an arts organisation, because that's how you learn about all the different roles that there are. Um, because you don't, you know, you don't have to be a dancer to work in dance, you don't have to be a choreographer to to work in dance. There's a There are a plethora of of roles that all I think have a creative element in them. It's about how you, um, how you find that. And you have to be a bit bold and a bit fearless and a bit bolshy and contact people and, you know, and, and write to them and ask and be a bit cheeky. Love it. Be a magpie, develop mastery, look after your mental health, be cheeky. What's not to like? Thank you so much, <laughs> Teresa. It's been really, really great to talk to you. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Christina. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to The Art of Work on Apple, Spotify, or any of the main podcast directories. And I'd be really grateful if you'd share, rate it, and or leave a review. Do sign up to my free Substack newsletter, also called The Art of Work. If you'd like to find out more about the podcast, my books, or explore the possibility of coaching with me, do have a look at my website, theartofwork.co. And do join me for another podcast next week.